This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Hi, I'm uh, John Charbach, for those of you who don't know me yet. Um, I'm a member at Providence Church, which is another Acts 29 church kind of down near campus. And it's my great uh, pleasure and honor to get to preach here occasionally. Um, Before that, though, let's um, open with prayer. Uh, God, thank you for uh, just the chance to gather together today in peace, um, to study your word, to reflect upon it, to be encouraged by it, to be challenged by it. Uh, We ask that you would help me um, to say the words that that you've appointed through your spirit that I would say, that you would give us soft hearts to be uh, not just hearers of the word, but doers also. Uh, that you would be, that we would be shaped by your truth, and most importantly, um, that we would just see the glory, uh, your glory, and the glory of your Son Jesus Christ clearly. That you would uh, just give us the opportunity to kind to tear back the veil of the world and 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 see things for what they really are. And uh, we pray all these things in your Son's name, Amen. Uh, so, shortly after retiring, uh, Thomas Jefferson, noted founding father. Uh, started a secret project, and his secret project wouldn't become known until after his death. And he, so Jefferson, just for context, he's a rationalist, meaning he sort of denies the uh, possibility of of revelation. He's a deist, meaning he denies that God is involved in everyday life. And he's a Unitarian, meaning he denies the, the truth of the Trinity. But he appreciated, in his words, the pure teachings of Jesus. And, but he thought kind of the Bible was a mixed bag of both diamonds and dung, to use his words. And his objection was basically like, hey, there's too many doctrines in this thing. There's too many ambiguous sayings that people can interpret however they want. Uh, there's too many miracles. And in a word, he said there's too much nonsense. And so his solution to this was to set about um, making his own Bible. And so literally, he got a bunch of different Bibles, and he got, you know, like a knife, an exacto knife, I assume, and, uh, you know, like a glue stick or whatever, and he starts cutting out the pieces that he likes, and, and only the pieces he likes, and just pasting them into a new Bible. And he, uh, he's like, he's literally cutting and pasting, and he's doing all this thinking that he's honoring what he calls the pure principles of Jesus. And I think few of us are so, like, literal about uh, what, about this as Thomas Jefferson was. Like, we're not, like, setting out and literally creating our own private Bible. But I think we all sort of do the same thing. We, we conveniently highlight the parts of the Bible we like. We sort of ignore the parts of the Bible we don't like. And in, in essence, um, we just sort of make up our own version of Christianity. Like, we figure out, hey, we think we're following what we consider to be the pure principles of Jesus. And we basically just ignore everything that doesn't fit that pattern. And then worst of all, we sort of bring that into the church and we tell our friends and people start to get confused. Like, hey, what is real Christianity? What is true Christianity? And so we're at Austin Life Church starting a new sermon in series in 1 John. And this sort of make your own Christianity, as I think it's sort of at the heart of the problem that John is trying to address in 1 John. That there's all sorts of fake versions of make your own Christianity floating around in the first century. And people are starting to get confused and are starting to shake their assurance. And they're asking questions like, well, who is Jesus? Like, is he really God? Did he come in the flesh? Is he really the Christ? 
We're like, why did Jesus come? Did he come to give us instruction? Did he come to make us be holy? Can we lose our salvation? Is that even possible? And then like, what did he actually teach? Is he teaching like a new commandment? Maybe there's an old commandment, like we're we supposed to love each other? Is the, how did the Jewish law fit into all this? Um, and First John, I think, is written to answer all these questions. It's written to offer clarity and reassurance to people who are profoundly confused by these false versions of Christianity. And so he's going to be answering the question throughout the book, what is true Christianity? But he's going to start with the most fundamental question. And so let's just take a look at our passage here. And the, the passage is 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you, may, you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And so here, in this passage, we'll see that John is telling us the most important thing about Christianity. That contrary to Thomas Jefferson, it's not just the, the pure teachings of, of Jesus. That true Christianity is a message about Jesus. It's a message about how Jesus is real. It's a message about how Jesus is God who took on flesh. And it's a message about how Jesus offers us fellowship. It's not a message of Jesus or from Jesus. It's the message about Jesus. All right, so, so true Christianity is a message about how Jesus is real. And so part of the context here, it seems to be, when you read through the rest of 1 John, start to put the pieces together, is that he's probably ad addressing a false teaching which is called docetism. Okay, docetism just means like semism, right? It, it, and what it means basically is that Jesus only seemed to have come in the flesh, but in reality, he was like a spirit or like a disembodied spirit or something, you know? Um, and, and so it, it's, 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 you know, basically denying the, the humanity of Jesus, which is sort of the opposite problem that we often have today. People deny the deity of Jesus. Here's like, oh no, he's, a, he's, he's, he's divine, but he just wasn't really a person. Uh, and, so, and, and so John is offering us two corrections here in this passage. The first correction is that Jesus was a real flesh and bones person. How do we know that? Well, let's just look at verse one and two. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So I don't think John is making some subtle argument that you need someone to kind of like translate for you here. He's saying like, hey, Jesus was real, and we know that because like we lived with him, and we saw him, and we heard him, and we touched with him, and we touched him, and we ate with him. Okay, and, and this is actually like a profoundly important point to say that Jesus existed bodily. He had a physical human body because if we deny that Jesus existed bodily, 
that he had a real physical body, then we end up denying the fact that there's a bodily resurrection, that he was really risen bodily. And so this is actually what the Docetists taught. They taught that like, okay, there's this, this kind of like, we're sort of playing Jesus, whatever, the spirit. And then at the, and then at the crucifixion, the, the spirit of God just sort of flew back up to heaven. You know, there's no real resurrection. And that's actually a very like profoundly problematic for Christianity, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15. But the second, so it's, it's like, it's important that Jesus was real, but even more important is that Jesus is real. Is real, not Israel. Is real, that Jesus is a real flesh and bones person, meaning his physical body was raised from the dead. Well, how do we know? Again, look back at verse one and two, that Jesus is the word of life, and they're testifying to that. Now, when it says, when it says testify, I think it's, it's kind of like a loaded term. What the, what the apostles are called to testify to is the entire ministry of Jesus, from, the, from, the, from his baptism all the way through his ascension into heaven, including his resurrection. It's sort of a loaded term in Scripture. But, so they're testifying to the fact that they saw him die, they saw him buried, and they saw him rise from the dead. And you say, okay, okay, sure, like that's probably biblically true, but like I don't really see that here in this passage. Like, what is, where are these things that you're saying, John? Well, okay, fair enough. But consider these two strikingly parallel passages, okay? And we're just gonna pop over to Luke chapter uh, 24 real quick. That's John. Luke chapter 24 verse 36 through 39. And there he says, and I'll just read it for you. He says, we were, we were talking about these things. This is after the resurrection. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you doubt arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet as I myself, it is I myself, touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as I have. Or consider from John, chapter 20, verse 24 through 28. This is the famous passage about Thomas. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see, his hand, I see in his hand the marks of the nail and place my fingers, I touch him, into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So in these, in these resurrection appearances, we have all the same concepts, all the same languages. We have the idea that the disciples see the risen Lord. They talk to the risen Lord. They literally touch the risen Lord. They're eyewitnesses to his resurrection, and they're testifying to these things. And so the significance of this, I think, is that there's false versions of Christianity, not just in John's time, in, in the first century, but in, this, in the 21st century, that say, hey, it doesn't really matter whether, whether Jesus rose from the dead. You know, they'd say, oh, it doesn't even matter if Jesus even really existed. And so what matters is, to kind of use the words of one group dedicated to what they call a, developing a realistic and meaningful version of Christianity for the 21st century, they say it's not the events of 2,000 years ago, but the Christian experience of Jesus as a living reality of the present. 
You think, okay, that kind of sounds, that's, like, that's got a certain compelling ring to it, like Christian experience of Jesus in the present. But John's saying that's not, that's not true. He's saying, hey, it, it matters. It, he's saying, I, I saw it. Jesus was real. Jesus really rose from the dead. And he's saying that these things, is not, it's not just that these things are important, right? But that the things that he's proclaiming about Jesus are actually the path to life that Jesus is the eternal life and we can have fellowship with him through these things that he's proclaiming. That this is matters, like this is a salvation issue, right? Whether we believe these things. And so, you know, by way of illustration, I have a friend who, uh, you know, it's F1 weekend here in Austin. F1's like the racing at the Circuit of Americas. And I have a friend who's just crazy about F1 racing. And he's been talking to us about F1 racing. He's been talking about like, oh, there's like the Netflix show that he watches and he's been following the teams in Europe. And he's been telling us about it. Like he's a, he's a bona fide fan, at least for an American. And about nine months back, his buddy told him, hey, I've got tickets to F1 weekend here in Austin. And he's like so excited. He's telling us whenever, we, like, whenever he sees us, he's talking about F1 weekend. They're like planning their lives around it or something. And, and he's like making plans around these tickets. And then last week, he's talking to his buddy and they're making plans for this weekend. And his buddy's like, great. So I'll just confirm that we've got the tickets and uh, we'll be good to go. And my friend's like, well, hold on, what do you mean? Like, conf- like I, I thought you had the tickets. What you What's there to confirm? I'm like, well, don't, don't worry. I don't, I don't like, actually have the tickets, but like, I told my friend and we're like on a list somewhere. You know, and he's like, well, you know, and, and we'll know in a couple of days. Well, he's like, well, the race is in a couple of days, right? And so long story short, it turned out he did not in fact have F1 tickets, right? And, but luckily, someone told him in time that he didn't have it was time enough remaining they didn't have F1 they actually went out and got some F1 tickets somehow I don't know by hook or by crook he ended up getting F1 tickets and so this morning they're at F1 and everyone's you know all's right in the world but imagine this right imagine no one had told him the truth his buddy didn't tell him the truth and they show up for the race you know and they're like trying to get it in and it's like oh I'm sorry you're like you're not on the list man this this is you can't, you can't come in. And he's like so embarrassed about it. Like, ah, you know. And he like just feels like an idiot because he's been like trusting his, his buddy this whole time who's not been telling him the truth. And his buddy turns to him and he's like, hey, man, isn't it like a little naive to think that people like you and me are going to go to F1? Like, have you seen the people that go to F1? You know, like, let's be realistic. It's not about the events of nine months ago or like who said what. It's about the experience, the authentic faith that we had along the way. You know, and it's like, isn't it just like all the fun we've had think about like isn't that what really matters and the short answer is no right if you show up at f1 and you don't have tickets like that matters you know and so the application here is like don't don't buy into the lie you know that there's there's one of the great tragedies of our age the spiritual tragedies of our age is how there's confused people are about the central fact of christianity uh about that jesus was real and jesus really rose from the dead and there's no shortage of people who I think are probably very well-meaning, who hold themselves out as Christian teachers who tell you that it doesn't matter if Jesus existed or if he rose from the dead. It doesn't matter if you have the F1 tickets. What matters is things like authentic spiritual experience or authentic love or authentic faith. And, and there's no shortage of people who believe them. Right? I used to believe them. And, 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 and people like us, you know, we, we have been deceived into thinking that we're Christians and that we're honoring God by playing spiritual make-believe. Like we know it's not true, but we like go through the motions because we've been doing it for a long time. And, and, and even though we don't believe in the resurrection, and John has, like his, his truth is so much simpler. It's not, it, it, he's like, hey, it actually matters if you have tickets. 
It matters if you have tickets. It's not about an authentic spiritual experience. It's about the fact that Jesus was real and was really raised from the dead. And I saw him, and I heard him, and I touched him, and it all happens. And I am a witness, and I am testifying as an eyewitness to you. And so I think the confrontation of this text is, what do we believe? Like, do we believe that Jesus was real? Do we believe that Jesus is real? Do we believe that he's raised from the dead, that he's alive today? Like, do we believe the apostolic witness recorded in the scriptures of what they testify to us? Or are we just playing spiritual make-believe? You know, that's the confrontation of this text. The true Christianity is a message about how Jesus was and is real. But true Christianity is also a message about who Jesus is. True Christianity's message about how Jesus is God who took on flesh. And so by way of context, there's early tradition suggests that one of the problems that John is running into is a guy named Serinthus. And Serinthus was sort of like a proto-Gnostic, if you care what that term means, or, and, 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 but basically, Serinthus' main teachings, although we don't have his teachings themselves, we're only reconstructing them from his opponents, so maybe Serinthus didn't really believe this, but, you know, like, Serinthus' main teaching was that there was a man called Jesus, and there's a spiritual entity called the Christ, kind of like the Holy Spirit or something. And from what we can tell, Serinthus taught that Jesus was an ordinary man, and then at his baptism, he was adopted by God and he received the Holy Spirit, kind of like David or Saul did in uh, first, first Samuel. And then he had divine guidance and power, but he was not really like God in the flesh, right? Like he, he, he was just an ordinary man who was temporarily filled with this kind of Christ spirit entity. Um, and, and that's what Serenthus is teaching. And then maybe some of you have, this is not, you know, Serenthus is not around and no one knows Serenthus, but like this teaching is not, you know, beyond the pale of what you're here just walking around in everyday American life. When you ask people, what do you think about Jesus? So John's, John's saying, you know, he's not just a man who received the spirit of God at some point. It's that he is the son of God who took on flesh. All right, where do we see this? Well, let's look again at verses one through three. And keep plowing these fields. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with us and with the Father has been manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So verse one, in that which was from the beginning, that's the subject of what he's talking about, namely Jesus, that he's suggesting that Jesus kind of always was, and it's a call back to John's prologue, in the beginning was the word. But also it's the eternal life which was with the Father, so there's an eternal life, the Jesus, kind of this logos, right, who was with the Father, and he was made manifest to us meaning he appeared to us. The same spiritual entity, the same subject of the sentence was with the Father and now is with us. He's, he's, he's the eternal life. He's, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's, he's, he's the same entity. It's not like a, the entity kind of like came to earth and like put on a human suit and went back. Like, you know, he became manifest to us. And I think this is another one is that the, the kicker is in verse three. He was with, we have fellowship with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus was the Christ, 
and the Son of God, or like Jesus was a person, but the Christ is something separate. No, it's his Son, the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. That, that takes the, parallel, the parallelism of this passage of like with the Father and with his Son suggests that they're kind of on the same level, right? That we have, and we have fellowship with both right now, suggesting that there's not a distinction between Jesus and the Christ and the Son of God. It's all the same thing. And you're all saying, okay, so you're like, okay, yeah, like that's very grammatical. And that sounds very like theological, which is, to, which is uh, you know, a polite way of saying that sounds very confusing and boring. And like, what's the point? Like, why are we talking about this? And I, I think, you know, one way to illustrate why this is important is uh, there's a couple of, you know, reality TV, or reality TV shows. One is called Undercover Boss. And Undercover Boss is like a horror of late modern capitalism. And <laughs> the idea is that like, Senior management goes undercover as like an entry-level employee for one week, and the premise is like I'm gonna, you know, senior management's gonna figure out everything that's wrong with the business uh, within one week because there's just you know, and then they, they and then they figure out what's wrong, they figure out who's been naughty and who's been nice, you know, and uh, and then they go back to the C-suite and they start they make 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 some improvements, they make some promotions, they fire some people, whatever, but basically like it's it's like the boss pretends to be a worker for a week to spy on workers and offer them advice about how to improve the company, right? Fine, great. You like that show? I hear it's great. I've never seen it. Another farm, another show, <laughs> what I call the farm show, but what was actually known as uh, Clarkson's Farm. And it's by this guy named Jared Clarkson who did Top Gear. Among the he's sort of like a vulgar, he's like British, he's very famous in Britain. He's like a very vulgar cross between like Jay Leno and Regis Philbin. Um, and you know, his, his show is that he like owns this farm and the farm manager retires and he's like, okay, well, my next reality TV show is going to be, I'm going to try to like learn how to run my farm for a year. Okay. And so he invests his own money and he does a lot of like most of the work himself. He has like a farm hand that helps him. And he really tries to understand the struggle of like what it means to be a farmer in 21st century England. And uh, so much so that he like, he like gets so into this that he actually ends up being like, you know what? Like, I don't need to, like, I, you know, He's, he's worth $70 million, whatever, he doesn't need to work. Um, but he ends up saying, like, I'm just going to be a farmer. Like, after that. I'm just going like, to kind of retire from my wor work as a TV celebrity and be a farmer and like, maybe keep doing this show. You know, but like, he's, 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 and he's using his position not to like, spy on people and offer him advice. Like, it's very obvious from the show that he's not the guy who comes in and is like, I have all the answers. Like, he's kind of an idiot, right? He's like, messing things up all over the place. But his, he, he, what he's trying to do is help farmers. And he does that by like, like identifying with them and raising awareness for what it's like to be a farmer in the 21st century England and he's sympathizing with their problems and with their weakness and he's advocating for changes and improvements and so the significance of the incarnation is, is this is that Jesus doesn't just sort of like pop in to spy on us and see how things are going it's, and, and then suggest some improvements it's not like hey y'all like be cool to the poor and like be more loving and don't kill each other um God, you've got, Jesus is not just like God playing human and then returning back to the C-suite to, you know, like go about his business. It's that the, the incarnation tells us that the eternal son of God, who's true God from true God, like he's on par with the father, he's the fullness of deity. Uh, he permanently became the man Jesus. You know, he was, he was a human being in every, he is a human being in every single respect that we are human beings. He was, he was born a man, he gets hungry, he gets tired, he gets sad, he feels pain. He doesn't just sort of like see the brutality of the world. You know, he actually like lives it, 
right? He was tempted as a man. He was rejected as a man. He was tortured as a man. And ultimately, he died as a man. And so he's like us in every respect, except one, which is that he's without sin. And so, therefore, death has no power over him. And so, as a man, he was resurrected. And as a man, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And as a man, he is our advocate and our great high priest. And as a man, he will one day return to judge the living and the dead. And so he's not just playing undercover boss, right? This is, this is, this is, he, he's, he's not even just playing Jeremy Clarkson. Like, this is his new identity. This is who he really is. is he had to give something up, you know, give up fellowship with the Father to come to earth and be with us and then return. But he's, he's forever changed by that. And, and so the application here, I think, is that like what we believe about Jesus, which we call theology, really matters. Theology matters. And theology is just a word that means the theology of God, the study of God. It's who he is, what God, you know, who God is, what God's done, what God says. And I think it's easy to write that off. It's easy to write off theology as saying like, oh, well, maybe it's unimportant. Unimportant. Like, what does it matter what we think about these sort of like arcane questions? Like, isn't it like how many angels can you fit on the head of a pen? Like, she believes this and I believe that, but we all agree on how to live, right? So theology maybe seems unimportant. Or maybe it seems divisive. You know, you all, you all know that one guy who gets really into some theological doctrine and like won't stop talking about it on Thanksgiving. You know, so it creates divisions maybe. In the, in, and, and God hates division, which is, you know, true. Or we think that maybe God, theology is made up right? Like, I, hey, I believe that Jesus is Lord. Everything else is just human interpretation. I have no creed but Christ. And, and, and there's the sound, you know, okay, but those are actually all deeply theological statements. Those are deeply theological statements. We can't escape theology. We all believe something about God. We all believe something about what he says and what he does. Even atheists have a theology of sorts. You know, they have certain metaphysical propositions about God that they believe. And Here's, here's the reality, is that if we don't think carefully about our theology, about what the Bible says is true, about the indicatives that kind of propel us towards the imperatives, the things that are true that tell us what to do, that the result is not that we have no theology, that we're floating around like these perfect, you know, the result is we have bad theology. We have thoughtless theology. We have theology that's not very carefully thought through, and it's, if we're not deliberate about letting the scriptures form our understanding of God's truth, then something else is going to form our understanding of God's truth. And, 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 and for the most part, it's going to be formed by the world. And so our theology is going to be like, oh, a bit from a cool tweet that I heard over here, and like a half-remembered chapter from this book I read a few years ago, and like there's a snippet from the sermon from the town I was growing up, and it's just so great, and it's like a witty punchline from like an Instagram reel or a Snapchat or however that works now. And it will sort of be like a boat in the middle of a storm with no ballast, and we're just caught in the storm and we're being blown away by every new idea that pops up. Hey, someone's got a new idea and like our, our life is knocked off course. And then when, our, when Satan has finally made a shipwreck of our faith, we'll be like, what happened? How could this have happened? And I think part of the answer is that we need to grow in maturity. And one of the ways we grow in maturity is by growing an understanding of theology. And you can check first, uh, Ephesians 4 for that. But I think part of what John is drawing out here is that what we believe about Jesus actually matters for our spiritual life. What we believe about Jesus actually matters for our spiritual mat- life. It matters, number one, to whether we're saved or not, and number two, as to how we live. Like, the gospel is not a magic formula where you say the right words and suddenly you're saved. It's a set of beliefs that we adhere to, right? The words give word to the, to the belief. So if someone says, oh, I believe in the Lord Jesus, you're like, oh, that's so great. 
and you ask them some questions, you find out that to them, the Lord Jesus is the name of their pet turtle, right? That person does not believe in the Lord Jesus, right? That's a silly example, but if someone says, you know, like, oh, I believe in the Lord Jesus, it doesn't, it, 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 matters, it matters what they believe. Do they believe that he's a, that like a prophet sent by God, a sort of undercover boss to like give the instructions and spy on people? Or do they believe that he's the son of God made man to offer up his life in our place? Like those are two very different propositions that will definitely shape how we live and how we feel empowered and how we relate to God, right? Uh, it's a God that, that loves us versus a God that just tells us what to do. And so in short, theology matters and we should be careful, number one, to learn theology and number two, to learn theology the right way, which is to say from God's word, studied in the context of God's church, okay? And so I, I asked Corey, I said, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be plugging theology hard in the sermon. Do you have a book that, or something like that? And I suggested a book. He's like, no, no, I've got this, which is true. Everyone is a theologian. Even the atheists are theologians by R.C. Sproul. And this is an introductory, as the name suggests, an introduction to systematic theology. And every Sunday, it, they just finished the introduction, the boring part. But now we're going to get into theology proper next week. So every Sunday at 9 a.m. is sort of like a Sunday school class here. Corey is working through this book with anyone that wants to show up. Right? And so if you've never done anything like an introduction to systematic theology and those seem like, you know, like, ugh, I, I would just check it out, man. Like, they, they, you know, we teach a systematic theology course. Like, I teach at, at my church, and, like, the consistent feedback is always like, man, I never, like, I never understood how, like, important and form formative this was. Right? This is like this is important formative stuff. So next Sunday, 9 a.m. Uh, in the in the in the the BSA building, uh, show up. Corey will be there. Y'all can y'all can learn some theology. Okay. So true Christianity is a message about how Jesus is real. True Christianity is a message about how Jesus is God who took on flesh. And finally, true Christianity is a message about how God how Jesus offers us fellowship. Jesus offers us fellowship. I think it's it's easy if you're like me, to focus on events and doctrines. And those are crucially important, yes. But then when we do that, sometimes we lose sight of what's really important. And so we sort of boil down Christianity to uh, you know, assurance about that we're going to heaven and not to hell, or historical facts that are true about Jesus, or theology and doctrine, or wise principles for godly living. And like these are all good things that we should know and believe, but true Christianity is not just anything. It's a message about the fullness of life found in Jesus. Okay, so look at, take a look at, with me at verse three and four. That which we have seen and heard, namely Jesus, we proclaim to you also, so that what purpose? Well, here's the answer. So that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the th Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So the purpose of the proclamation is so that you may have fellowship, meaning us, may have fellowship with John. Right? And by extension, he's saying so that you, which is to say we, can have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And by sharing in this fellowship with Christ and with John and with one another, all our joy can be made complete. That is to say, like filled up or crammed full, like overflowing. And so what is 
when he, John says fellowship, what is this joy-producing fellowship? What does that mean? Like, well, if you break out your Greek-English lexicon and you look it up, you'll see like, oh, it means like a close sharing, a mutual interest, a partnership or a union. It's not just like we go to the fellowship hall and we have coffee. Like, that's an aspect of fellowship. Um, but it's like we're, we're, in it, we're in it together. You know, we have, we're, we're joined together. What's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine. And so when we think about fellowship, like I think we should think in part about like Acts 2, where people are like selling their possessions and you know, using them to support one another. But, and that's one an- answer of what it means to have fellowship, that it means closeness of brothers and sisters dwelling together in service of the gospel, in unity, which Psalm 133, for example, says is good and pleasant and grounds for blessing and life evermore. Right, this is kind of the horizontal fellowship of the fellowship, our fellowship with John and every other believer, okay? That's one answer. But the second answer, I think, is a little more subtle and a little more profound, which is that it's fellowship or union with Jesus. And so, like, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, Paul says that, like, it's a fellowship or a participation with, or union with Christ, that we are Christ and Christ is ours. We're in Christ and Christ is in us and his blood covers our sin and guarantees us eternal life. So when we say like participation, we mean also like a part. We all have a part in Christ. And that's how I think it's being used here in First John. Right? We see like if you just scan down to verse 6 and 7, you know, we see like if we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And what? And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all our sins. So it's this, this fellowship is that fellowship. It's the uniting fellowship with one another, but it's also this fellowship that unites us to Christ with the sort of sin-destroying power of his blood. And then notice like the parallelism between verse 2, like I'm proclaiming to you eternal life, and verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also. So they, he's saying I'm proclaiming eternal life, and he's saying I'm proclaiming Jesus. And so Christianity, true Christianity is everything. It's, it's not just like just anything. It's, tr- it's everything. It's, it's fellowship with Jesus. It's fullness of union with Christ. It's life everlasting. It's new community. It's like being knit together, you know, with one another in a body. That we are in Christ in some mystical way that the Bible says is true, but it's not clearly defined. Uh, and Christ is in us. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. Meaning everything that is his has become ours. That his father is our father and his sinless perfection and holiness cancels the record of our sin and his Holy Spirit dwells in us guiding and empowering us and his inheritance is our inheritance and we have been joined with him in his death. We have been joined with him in his resurrection and we will be joined with him when he returns to reign in glory, that everything that is his has become ours. And that's good news. But also, by the very same token, everything that is ours has now become his. Meaning, our bodies have become his bodies. And our time has now become his time. And our possessions have become his possessions. And our lives have become his lives. And he's free to use these things however he chooses. Because everything that is ours has become his. And since, moreover, if that's not enough for you, like if Christ is joined to us and we are joined to Christ, it therefore follows that we are all joined one to another. 
about the transitive property of mathematics. And Paul talks about this as being part of the body of Christ. It's knit together in love. Or John talks about it in terms of this joy-filled, life-giving fellowship. That it's not like, you know, as, as, as Corey said earlier, it's not like we're just a bunch of disconnected individuals who all happen to show up somewhere on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon, depending on your church. Um, but we're actually a living organism that functions together and exists for the sake of God and his mission in the world. And so when John says, like, hey, I'm telling you these things so that our joy, you would think he would say your joy, but our joy may be full, I think this is kind of what he means. Like, like if, I, if I lost my left hand, let's just say, ideally, you know, it wouldn't disrupt my Christian joy. And, you know, I, I would be bummed out, but, like, whatever. Like, I, I'll, it'll be restored in the new heavens and the new earth. And I could still function reasonably well, to be honest. Like, it'd be harder to do certain things that I set out to do, but I could still function reasonably well. And, but then if by some miracle my left hand were restored to me, well, my joy would be, in some sense, filled up. Okay? My, my, my other hand would rejoice and have to, like, do double duty typing and, like, you know, my feet would rejoice that I could, like, tie my shoes properly. And my knees would rejoice that when I'm, like, shift, you know, I'm not having to, like, steer with my knee while I shift something, you know, or, like, press a button. And so if the church is the body of Christ, which is true, then when people are added to it, it's like restoring a missing hand. Or, like, you know, I don't know. For those of you who have been around long enough, like, it's, you know, there was a time when, when, the, when the band was one guy on keys singing. You know, and then like you add in another person. You add in, hey, here's here's the harmony vocal, and then you add in like, oh, now we got a lead guitar, and like now we got you know a drum, and then this time I came and there was a bass, you know. So like we're like every time you're adding more things, it's like you know the 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 the, the acapella singer is sufficient to lead worship, and if there's something that's joyful and rejoicing about adding more and more things to the praise of God, and consistent with Psalm 150, that you know it's not like that you know it's like it's not like God needs all these things. But God, like, we should rejoice in these. They should fill our joy up in these things, okay? So the application here, I think, uh, is, oh, sorry. So, so, so if, if, if when we proclaim the gospel and people are saved, it's like restoring limbs to the, to the body or adding more members to, to the band, right? Until we have, like, a full, like, 70s disco orchestra going. And, you know, with, and when people are added to it, like, we, we, it, we sh- it should top off, our, top off our joy. Like, first because we're fulfilling the mission of God. Great. You know, but second, because we're bringing more people into the mission of God. And third, because we're deepening the ranks of our own fellowship. We're adding, you know, more people to the band. And so, you know, the application is, hey, we shouldn't just settle for just this or just that version of Christianity. John is telling us these things so that we can have fellowship with Christ. Which is to say, John is telling us these things so that we can experience the fullness of the eternal life secured for us in Jesus, both vertically with our Father in heaven, but also horizontally with one another. Okay, so the application here is, well, maybe, maybe that's not you. Like, let's be honest, okay? Like, maybe you know you're not a Christian. Like, you're here because, you know, someone has dragged you here, like a, a, a spouse or a parent. Or maybe you're just visiting with a friend because you're eager to find out what the hubbub's all about, you know? And maybe you found out, maybe you thought you were a Christian, but like the things that John is saying are perhaps, if, you know, uh, making you realize that perhaps you don't believe the gospel. Like perhaps you don't believe the good news that 
the eternal son of God really became a man and really died and was really raised so that anyone who believes in him will not only be forgiven of their sins but also have eternal life and fellowship with God. And you're hearing that for the first time. You know, people have been telling you that your whole life and it's just, you know, in one ear and now you're like, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm not a believer, okay? Or maybe you are a believer, right? That's probably most of your situation, hopefully. And, 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 and you know, we know that we're Christians and we're just feeling discouraged or confused about how to follow Jesus. Or maybe we used to be on fire for the Lord back in, back in our younger days, you know, and, but it's just, our vision of Christianity has been shrinking over the years and the fire has been getting more kind of like subdued as we go further on in life. Or maybe, hey, we're just feeling burdened by the weight of sin. That we sort of, the lies of the accuser have worked their way into our hearts and we're just feeling like, ah, I did this, here's what, here, you know, I did this thing last week. I did this thing, you know, whatever. And, and Satan is just telling you, hey, you did that thing. Remember that thing that you did? You know, like God doesn't love you. How could he love someone like you? You know? And either way, you know, whatever bucket you fall into, here's, here's the message of the text for us. I think the most important message of the text for us, which is that anyone who believes the gospel has been forgiven of their sins and has eternal life and fellowship with God. And so I think the invitation of the text is that we would trust in, trust more deeply in the Lord Jesus for our salvation. That no matter where we've been or what we've done, that he can and will and has washed us clean. And that no matter how we've stumbled or how, um, what we, you know, what's happened in our lives, that he who began a good work in us will see it through to completion. And so we trust that, like, if God loved us so much that while we were his enemies, you know, like, ah, shaking our fists at God, he was like, here's my plan. I'm going to send my son to die for them, my enemies. You know, if he loves us so much that he gave up his only son for the life of the world, now that we are his children, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Like we can trust the God that does that. We can trust the God that endures the humiliation of the, extra, of the incarnation for our good to know that whatever else he tells us to do and whatever else happens in our life is also for our good. And so I think we should just be careful not to settle for a just this or a just that version of Christianity, but believe in like a Christ-centered, Christ-dependent, Christ-filled Christianity. And so John is writing to a church that's just being inundated, like, like overwhelmed with all sorts of false messages about what Christianity really is. Like, oh, it doesn't matter if he was if Jesus with a body or a spirit. It doesn't matter if really Jesus really came in the flesh. God doesn't care how we live. Holiness doesn't matter. Like these are all, these false messages all sound so appealing to us because they tell us what our little itching ears want to hear, right? Uh, but John's answer is to offer a very different kind of Christianity, a radically, like not like crazy, but like root, from the very root, a radically Christ-centered Christianity. It's a message about, that centers on Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us, what we have in him. And he proclaims to us the most basic fact there is about Jesus, the most basic fact, that he is God who became man for our salvation and he's asking us and inviting us to believe that fact. And attached to that invitation, attached to that truth, or to that thing that we're supposed to do, he attaches the truth. He promises us that anyone who does that will have eternal life and fellowship with Jesus. And so I think we can just 
take, our, take some time to direct our rejoicing to God for these truths. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.